This is episode six of the Angry Tech News podcast for Monday, October 18th, 2021. This is the Angry Tech News podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the angry programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. I can tell that ATN is starting to get some listeners because every single one of you seems to be commenting, fact-checking, and trolling me in email at ryan at angrytechnews.com, on Mastodon, where I go by Sir Bemrose at noagendasocial.com, and in the No Agenda Troll Room, where I read everything but usually don't respond. I want to say I appreciate every bit of feedback you producers... You know what? Let's bring back at least one thing from my old show, even if the show isn't mine anymore. You're experts. I appreciate every bit of feedback from this show's experts. I also appreciate donations, but since there were none this week, I'm going to go with feedback. Billy Bones at No Agenda Social comments on last week's electric charging roads. EV buyers and creators don't worry about costs because it will all be subsidized. No kidding. Daryl at No Agenda Social, Daza NZ, mentions, They retired the overhead electric bus fleet in Wellington, New Zealand five years ago, and they replaced them with diesel. Then five years later, there are about 10 electric buses out of a fleet of a few hundred. We went backwards. Abel Kirby on the Rare Encounter podcast gives the best review of ATN to date. He says, meh, it didn't make me angry. And Bemlet, one of the only EV owners still willing to talk to me after last episode, says, that my numbers were all wrong about how level one charging, how long level one charging takes. It takes him three days of L1 charging just to get four hours of driving. <laughs> even at L2, he has a, he has a connector. It goes 30 amps. He says he doesn't break even. He has to spend more time charging than he gets to drive. And Progo at No Agenda Social has some issues with the sweepers. He says, You've got to make the cat screeches quieter or something. I can only listen to this on loudspeakers so many times before I unsubscribe instead of disturbing the people around me. This isn't the only complaint I've received about the cat sounds. While I personally think they're pretty cute and reflect exactly the tone I want to convey, which is, to be honest, I think the cat sounds are less annoying than my voice, but that's me. We do value your feedback here at Angry Tech News. We are also data-driven. You will hear no cat noises on this episode. Next week, we'll go back to the usual level of felinity. Whichever episode between among the two gets more donations will tell me whether you, the audience, enjoy the cat sweepers or would prefer to murder all kittens. As for Progo's immediate problem, I have a much faster solution. Allow me to introduce you to an invention called headphones. So I'm a bit nauseous after using a Silicon Valley buzzword like data-driven. I need a moment to clear my head. On with the news. From the Making Internet Explorer Seem Good by Comparison department, Mozilla continues its crusade to add as many user-hostile and privacy-compromising features to Firefox as it can while holding back just enough to still be not quite as bad as Chrome. Firefox 93 released last week, bringing with it a new feature called Firefox Suggest, which Mozilla describes as a new discovery feature that is built directly into the browser. Firefox suggests acts as a trustworthy guide to better the web, surface relevant information, and sites to help people accomplish their goals. 
Trustworthy to whom, they don't specify, but of course we can guess. Firefox suggests we'll enhance this by including other sources of information such as Wikipedia, pocket articles, reviews, and credible content from sponsored, vetted partners, and trusted organizations. To translate, this means that ads will be mixed in with your address bar suggestions. Although it was hard to translate a sentence that has both the words Wikipedia and credible in the same sentence. Mozilla put out a list of partners that meet Firefox privacy standards, and currently its only member is a company called Ad Marketplace. Brief side rant. Companies love to use the word discovery to talk about what are... Well, okay, let's face it. They're ads. They're ads. Discovery means ads. Whenever you see somebody say discovery, it's ads. They uh, may not be advertising. They may not get be getting paid for the advertising. They may not be advertising a company outside of them, but they are advertising something. What they are trying to do is exactly the same thing that an ad brings. They are trying to take your attention from whatever it is that you intend to be pointing it to and direct it toward whatever they want to point it to. Brief Microsoft story because I'm full of them and gosh, these guys can piss me off sometimes. The Xbox team, when they were revamping the Xbox 360 dashboard, I remember the first time that they decided to put Discovery into the front of it. And they, they literally made the whole thing completely unusable. They turned the whole dashboard into a grid of boxes of which I think one of them went to your game library. One of them went to the disc that was in the drive and all of the rest of them were ads. And sure, they were ads for games on the Xbox platform. They were ads for new apps that you might not have noticed, but that's what discovery is. Every single time somebody says, oh, we have to improve discovery. What they mean is we worked really hard on a feature or somebody's paying us for a feature and we want to make sure you notice it. And that is what an advertisement is. So if somebody uses the term discovery and they're writing software, you need to slap them and be like, I'm not interested in ads. So anyway, Mozilla says that the Firefox suggest feature is opt-in. You can turn the feature on by clicking allow suggestions, a button whose label very much doesn't suggest that it gives you ads or by the menu settings, privacy and security address bar Firefox suggest bleeping computer ran tests and received user reports suggesting that this feature is on by default, which is not what Mozilla had said. The list of PII collected for the ads search history, list of suggestions you clicked on your location well, your city, at least. In a clarification put out by Mozilla, after I had written this up, Suggest actually has three different modes. History is suggestions from search history, bookmarks, open tabbed, kind of like previous versions of Firefox. This is the default, so actually not awful. Offline mode is ads are served from a local file. They say this is enabled by default in the US, which sounds a hell of a lot like ads being enabled by default to me. And the mode that is opt in per described above is the online mode where they download ads from their partners. Not to be outdone, Google has introduced yet another invasive API to give website operators details about you that they really don't need to know. Chrome 94 released on September 21st includes an idle detection API. While Facebook was taking their hits from Congress for putting engagement ahead of user well-being in their whistleblower theater that they came up with a few weeks ago, Google has given site developers yet another tool to measure your engagement. 
and fine-tune the site's annoyance to grab your attention should Chrome ever detect that it's wandering. Chrome 94's implementation includes a prompt like a webcam or a microphone that says, this website wants to know when you're actively using this device. The prompt will likely make the feature useless as nobody in their right mind willingly opts into tracking for no reason whatsoever. Google has given no word on how long before they give in to pressure from devs who want to track you and remove the user choice. Opponents of the Chrome feature include the WebKit devs, the Mozilla devs, and uh, just about everybody who cares about privacy online, including Mozilla Web Standards lead Tentec Chelik, who called it, quote, surveillance capitalism. From the Rusty Snake Oil Department, there's a story bouncing around about a new energy company out of Oregon known as ESS, stands for Energy Storage Systems. The company, which went public about a week ago, is promising a new kind of battery technology using iron salts, which could provide safe, cheap, reliable energy storage that, at least according to a headline in Bloomberg, could, quote, eat lithium's lunch. Understandably, when I first heard about this technology, aided by nothing more than the simplistic drawings and sales pitch language on their website, I was skeptical. Digging deeper, the technology behind it is kind of intriguing. More on the technology later, but let's first talk about the company itself. ESS has been around since 2011 and has been backed mostly by SoftBank and by Breakthrough Energy Ventures. The latter, if you don't know, is an energy investment firm owned by Bill Gates. When ESS went public a week ago, they did so through a SPAC, uh, Acon S2 Investment Company, presumably because this helps the company seemingly held up entirely by VC funds and promises of green energy avoid the messy transparency requirements of a conventional IPO. ESS's main claim to financial solvency seems to be a $300 million energy deal that they have just announced with SB Energy Corp. SB Energy is a division of SoftBank who, as I pointed out a moment ago, is one of ESS's primary investors. Besides the SB Energy deal, the company has not yet recorded any revenue and in fact lost almost $250 million in the first six months of 2021. I don't think I'd have wanted to IPO either. The technology behind their battery is actually kind of cool stuff, though. The ESS page says their product is based on something called, quote, iron flow chemistry. Wikipedia simply calls it an iron salt flow battery. At its most basic, a regular battery cell consists of two metal, metal conductors separated by a fluid electrolyte. A chemical reaction at one plate, induced by the electrical charge, causes the molecules in the electrolyte to gain or lose electron, which are taken from or deposited on the other plate to complete the circuit. A classic battery puts the conductors and electrolyte into a sealed package where only the inputs, be, the only inputs are the electrodes. A flow battery, on the other hand, instead pumps the electrolyte through the cell in two chambers separated by a thin membrane. Individual molecules that gain a charge at one conductor don't lose it at the other. Rather, they just keep their extra charge as it's pumped out of the cell. Later, that charged molecule can be pumped back through the cell to give up its charge. The voltage, power, and capacity characteristics of a battery are determined by what material is used for the conductors and electrolytes. Lithium is one of the best materials for solid-state cells, but it's also fairly rare and is only mined in a few places. There are some flow batteries out there in the market that use vanadium or sulfur, but those materials are also either rare or toxic. What ESS proposes is to use iron as its electrolyte, one of the most abundant metals on Earth. 
and relatively safe compared to most batteries. Specifically, they want to use an iron chloride salt dissolved in water. In theory, what they lose in cell efficiency, they can make up in safety and in cost and availability of materials. Will iron chloride batteries eat lithium's lunch, as Bloomberg says? No, no, not, a, not in anything portable. For phones and cars, it's all about energy density and space economy. Where these iron flow cells shine is in grid storage, which is becoming increasingly necessary as more and more green-driven municipalities abandon reliable power sources in favor of spotty renewable ones. While it's not feasible to house a truck-sized battery weighing 30 tons for your phone or electric vehicle, a city grid is more than capable. Another advantage is that grids generally need a lot of capacity. To add capacity to a fixed-cell battery like lithium-ion, you add more cells, which increases the cost linearly. To add capacity to a flow battery, you need only add more electrolyte and the tanks to hold it. The capacity of a flow system and its power, determined by number of cells, can be scaled independently, which can lead to a much more cost-effective design. So, on paper, these iron salt flow systems seemed like a no-brainer, especially when compared to expensive, poorly scalable, and environmentally disastrous technologies like lithium-ion. Suck it, Elon. At least, as the ESS marketing materials would have you believe. In practice, every attempt to build an iron flow battery at scale has run into major problems that made them economically infeasible. One problem is the precision of key parts like the pumps and membranes inside the cell. A civil engineer can tell you that using high precision components at scale means high maintenance costs and a lot of calls out to the vendor for parts. Another problem is hydrogen. Applying an electric current across water causes electrolysis into hydrogen and oxygen. Not very much at the low voltages inside the cell, certainly not enough to explode or anything. They, they even run at low temperature, but still a little bit. Hydrogen is a very small molecule that is notoriously hard to keep contained. When the hydrogen leaks out, the leftover oxygen binds to iron to create iron oxide. This rust is useless and reduces the efficiency of the system. ESS says that they've solved the hydrogen and the other scaling problems, although they don't say how. I want to believe them because this is cool technology and looks like it's found its niche, but the economics of clean energy have never been favorable. Too many companies with big ideas and a business model propped up by subsidies, angel funds, fuzzy math, and questionable bookkeeping like $300 million deals with subsidiaries of your own investors, and then call it a win. As long as the political climate is green at all costs, we're never going to have an efficient source of green power. As long as tax money subsidizes whatever some bureaucrat decides is green, we're never going to know which technologies are in economically viable because there's no market pressure to try to be economically viable. The only incentive is to build up a flashy marketing pitch full of buzzwords so you can give your idea to investors for investment money and bureaucrats for tax money. Having technology that works is really only an afterthought in this environment. Someday I might go into a rant about how high taxes and economic drain is far worse on humanity than pollution or running out of a resource, but I digress. I probably already said enough to get kicked off YouTube, which would be a hell of a trick since I don't publish there. As an aside, when I was researching this story, the ESS marketing materials kept comparing their system to lithium and saying things like, lithium storage is only viable for two to four hours. A statement that I at least initially found kind of absurd. Lithium batteries don't self-discharge that quickly. Okay, maybe yours does if you have a ton of apps installed, but they don't by default. One metric I came across was, it was called LCOE, Levelized Cost of Energy. 
It measures the cost of storing energy in various mechanisms for a given number of hours before returning it to the grid. I, I think this is where that two hour number comes from. According to an old graph I found 2014 for storage of more than two hours, lithium ion batteries are the least cost efficient in terms of dollars per megawatt hour. More current graphs put the number closer to four, but the ESS materials state that their system goes up to 12 hours more in line with the daily cycle of generation, which I think is the goal. I can't be sure I'm interpreting the graphs correctly, but I think this is why ESS was pounding so hard against lithium battery systems because lithium batteries are only economically viable for four hours and ESS goes all the way to 12. And I guess if you want a daily cycle, you need 24, but who am I kidding, right? But there was another technology on the graphs that was never mentioned once in the ESS materials, pumped storage hydroelectric, a much lower tech system where you use excess power to pump water up a hill into a reservoir. And then when you need that power, you open up a valve and let it run downhill through a turbine. The LCOE time on the pumped storage hydro? A year. Funny how ESS didn't want to take pot shots at that one. From the Black Mirror as a Prophecy Department, arms manufacturer Sword International has teamed up with Ghost Robotics, a company that fills the niche left by Boston Dynamics' inconvenient policy of refusing to let their robots be weaponized to produce a bit of nightmare fuel straight out of a dystopian Tom Cruise movie. The Special Purpose Unmanned Rifle Robot, or SPUR, is a quadrupedal robot dog with a 6.5mm Creedmoor sniper rifle for a face. The robot was unveiled at the AUSA convention in Washington, D.C., Spokesmen for the company say that Spur can load and fire remotely and clear jams even. It can also be configured to use 7.62 NATO cartridges instead of the 6.5mm Creedmoor. They say it has a fire range of 1,200 meters. They also say that it uses a Teledyne Flare boson thermal camera with a 30x optical zoom and night vision and is operated via tablet using their Android Team Awareness Kit app, or ATAK, attack. While I don't know precisely what all of that means, I do know that I'd like to stay more than 1.2 kilometers away from it at all times. Ghost Robotics has stressed that in its current form, Spur is entirely operator control. If you happen to be the leader of a foreign oil-rich country, you may be happy to know that when you get murdered by a robotic dog in U.S. Army colors, that a 26-year-old Army specialist in Southern California watched you die before heading out to catch a movie. We can be sure that the fully autonomous AI-driven death machines will become available as soon as the Overton window allows. And finally, from the System and Process of Transforming Vice into Virtue Department, the city of North Vancouver, B.C. has announced a partnership with a company called Mint Green, who described themselves as a cryptocurrency clean tech company and energy economics hacker. Mint Green has developed a proprietary digital boiler, which they claim will allow them to recover up to 96% of the energy used by Bitcoin mining as heat, which will then be used to heat the city's buildings. From Mint Green's press release, Lonsdale Energy Corporation, LEC, the award-winning district energy utility is on a decarbonization journey to implement more renewable and clean energy. The building sector presently accounts for 40% of carbon emissions in urban areas, but district energy creates an opportunity to reduce the urban carbon footprint 
through the integration of innovative new technologies. In 2022, the city and LEC will be introducing a novel heat source to their district energy system, Bitcoin mining. Over the term of the engagement, Mint Green's digital boilers will prevent 20,000 tons of GHGs from entering the atmosphere per megawatt compared to natural gas. Production of both Bitcoin and usable thermal energy positions the digital boilers to be the cost-leading low-carbon heating technology. I gotta admit, I can't even get angry about this one. Slow clap. Bravo. This may well be the most audacious green energy scam I have ever seen. And the competition is stiff for that award. Okay, here's what I know. The city of North Vancouver, population 53,000, has municipal power company called Lonsdale Energy Corporation. They seem to comport themselves as a private corporation, but are wholly owned by the city. Not sure how that works, but whatever. LEC has a system of hot water pipes and steam tunnels that run under the downtown core and provide heated water to the buildings, which are then heated by radiators. The idea is you create one central boiler plant and run heating pipes to the other buildings. My university had one of these. The best part about the system was breaking in and using the heated space for drinking in cigars. I digress. The reason for the central boiler plant is because with systems like coal or natural gas-fired boilers, especially from 100 years ago, your energy efficiency increases with scale and temperature. Back then, it was far more efficient to generate the heat in one place and pipe hot water to different buildings than to send the fuel to the buildings and have it burn on site. With today's natural gas heating solutions, I doubt there's very much of a difference between them. But of course, that misses the point of green energy. The idea is not to use any fossil fuels at all because, um, I guess, because energy-dense sources of power are bad. Sure, they produce far more energy far cheaper than any other source, but they are ungreen. But Ryan, my house is heated with electricity. Yes, electricity is completely clean, as long as you don't think too hard about where it came from. Where I live, that usually means hydroelectric, which is actually pretty damn clean as far as energy goes. The local greenies in their never-ending crusade to drag us all back to the Stone Age have had to turn to arguments like, it harms the fish, because they can't complain about air pollution. British Columbia also uses primarily hydropower, so I'll give them that, but most places that power probably came from natural gas anyway. The most common and dead simple way to heat with electricity is to use a resistive electric heater. One kilojoule comes in off the grid, and you get exactly one kilojoule of heat added to your house courtesy of a resistor that you plug into the wall. By that metric, it is exactly 100% efficiency. However, the modern world has invented something even better. A heat pump is a device which draws in heat from the outside. One kilojoule of electricity expended can increase the heat in your house by several kilojoules. As a bonus, you can run it in reverse in the summer to move heat from the inside to the outside of your house, something those resistive electric heaters can only dream of, or North Vancouver's boilers. But now, Mint Green and LEC have come up with the ultimate inefficiency, free energy from bitcoins. So the press release doesn't say anything about how this power is generated or where they get it. They don't even mention any energy input at all, only that it's a proprietary digital boiler. But let me take a few stabs at how I think this is going to work. If it's generating BTC, it's using a computer. Computers run on electricity. All electrical appliances that consume electricity eventually emit resistive heat equal to the amount of energy consumed by the appliance. So I think it's safe to assume that this proprietary digital boiler is simply a BTC mining computer 
or more likely a bank of them, that captures the waste heat generated by the GPU, probably through some sort of water cooling system, and sends that heat into the central boiler plant. So, North Vancouver is replacing their direct-fired, high-efficiency natural gas boilers with what is essentially a centralized resistive electric heater that takes power from the grid with grid losses, converts it to heat with a 4% loss, according to the press release, and then pipes hot water to the buildings. As a side effect, it happens to be mining bitcoins. The city would be far better off if they just connected the system of boiler pipes to a central heat pump. Or... Here's a thought, disconnect the whole system and pipe that electricity into the individual houses where people can use resistive heaters or heat pumps. If I was a resident of North Vancouver, my money would be a hell of a lot better spent by disconnecting the radiator entirely, buying a computer with a couple of bulk GPUs and mining my own BTC in my house. At least then the heat would be going where I need it and I'd get to keep any coins mined. Which reminds me, the press release also doesn't say anything about who gets any coins if they happen to get mined by this system. Or for that matter, who's paying for the electricity used to run these proprietary digital boilers? For the sake of the scam, I really hope Mint Green's contract lets them keep the coins while sticking the city with the electric bill. One more line from the press release, just to see if I can read this out loud without vomiting. The complex issue of climate change requires innovative solutions and LEC with the city of North Vancouver is showing tremendous leadership in environmental stewardship, said Mint Green CEO Colin Sullivan. Using BC's energy twice both eliminates waste and makes this project one of the greenest in the space. Remember what I was saying about Silicon Valley being mostly about the quality of your sales pitch? I'm telling you, telling him that you're using the energy twice, that's, that's got to win an award. Angry Tech News is released on the value for value model. We don't take advertising, we don't charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. So if you got any value out of listening to this episode of Angry Tech News, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button to make a one-time or recurring PayPal donation. Send what you think this show has been worth to you. Is it $5, $25, or $500? That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the Angry Programmer with a mic. Tune in next week for more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry.